Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome uh, once again to our Wednesday night uh, Bible study in the book of Romans. Uh, tonight we come to Romans chapter 5, verses 5 through 11, and the title of our lesson is The Love of God. Now, tonight, Paul, in this passage or in these verses, is going to answer two questions for us, and these aren't trivial questions. These are hugely important questions with um, eternal significance. And those two questions are these. Number one, how do we know God loves us? We hear that all the time, right? We, we see it on signs and billboards, God loves you. But how do we know that? And secondly, in the same vein, how do we know how much God loves us? These are the two questions that Paul is going to answer. Now, as we began chapter 5 last week, uh, we, we, we realized that chapter 5 has really been about one thing, and that is assurance. Uh, Paul began in verse 1 saying, Therefore, since we have been justified or made right with God by faith. And he gave us three benefits. Number one, we have peace with God. Number two, we stand in the grace of God. And number three, we rejoice in the hope of God. So what Paul is trying to get across to us is he wants us to know, to, to be guaranteed, to be absolutely assured that our trust in God is going to pay off. And so in verse 5, he makes this statement. He says this, Now hope does not disappoint. And some translations actually put it this way, Hope will never be put to shame. Now what he's saying is if you put your trust in God, you put your faith in God, you don't have to worry that hope, that faith, that trust, you'll never be disappointed. But what I want you to notice tonight is the basis for that promise. Let's read verse 5. He says, Now hope does not disappoint, and here's why. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In a nutshell, Paul is saying this. You put your hope in God, you don't ever have to worry. That hope will never be put to shame. It will never be disappointed. Why, Paul? Because God loves you. Now, this brings us to our first question. Remember, this, this whole chapter really is about assurance. So we can ask the question, okay, Paul, well, how do we know that? You say that's true. You say God loves us, but how do we actually know that God loves us. Well, it turns out there's really two ways that we can know that God loves us. The first way, of course, is from Scripture. For example, we might refer to John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And we can say, well, you know, I'm part of the world, therefore God loves me. And by the way, that's true. In fact, that is a perfectly valid way of knowing you are loved by God. On the pages of Scripture, the Bible tells us numerous times, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. So believing that is important and good and right thing to do. But that is not what Paul is referring to here in Romans 5.5. 5. Paul is, is referring to a different way that we can know that God loves us. And that is through experience. Let's read verse 5 again and look at what it says. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. Again, yes, t reading that God loves you on the pages of Scripture, perfectly valid. But Paul says there's another way that you can know that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. He said you can know through experience. 
You see, God's love for us isn't something that you just have to infer from Scripture. It is something that you can feel and know and experience in the deepest part of your heart. Now, I've got to say this. Anytime we start talking about experience, we need to kind of stop and point something out. The Holy Spirit is not like a mood-altering drug. He's not a, a, a Valium or a Xanax that you can take. You know, you take a drug like that, and it doesn't change the outside. It doesn't change the circumstances. It just gives you a good feeling. Well, the Holy Spirit's not like that. He doesn't just put a whammy on us so that we, quote, feel uh, loved. In fact, let me tell you why He doesn't do that. Let's say uh, for a moment that the Holy Spirit did work like that, that He did work like a drug. He just, he just gave you this feeling, irregardless of any truths from Scripture, any, irregardless of, of anything, any thoughts about what Christ did for us on, on the cross. Let's just say He just made you feel good. See, if He did it that way, Christ would no more be glorified than He would by us shooting up with heroin or, or any other type of drug. You see, and that's not how the Holy Spirit works. In John 16, 14, Jesus says this, He, talking about the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. That's one of the things that the Spirit came to do was glorify Christ. So if God's love for us is not based on anything, it's just some happy feeling that He gives us, Christ would not be glorified and the Holy Spirit would never do that. So this experience that I'm talking about of feeling God's love, of knowing God's love deep down inside has to be based on something. It can't be based on nothing. It has to be based on some facts or some objective content. But what would that feeling be based on? Well, let's ask another question. How do you know that your wife or your husband or your brother or your sister or your mother or your father or your friend, how do you know they love you? I mean, let's face it, anybody can say they love you. People can write poems and songs and, and put it in an email or a text message or tell you verbally, I love you. Anybody can do that. But how do you really know they do? How do you know they do? Well, it's pretty simple, by their actions. You see, someone's actions towards you is, is, is what shows their love. Are they faithful to you? Are they giving towards you? Are they sacrificial towards you? So let's come back to our first question. How do we know God loves us? Well, the answer is exactly the same. In the same way that we know human beings love us by their actions toward us, that's exactly the same way that we know that God loves us. It's based on His actions. So what we're seeing here is this experience of the love of God, which is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, is done so through the knowledge of what Christ did for us on the cross. This is exactly what Paul is talking about in tonight's passage in verses 5 through 8. Let's, let's read it and see what he says. Paul says, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. For when we were still without strength, in other words, Paul says, when we still couldn't do anything for ourselves to be made right with God, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, we were not righteous. 
We were not good. We were ungodly. Even in that state, God demonstrated His love for us by dying for us. You see, is the love of God poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit for us to feel emotionally and and, and in an experiential way? Absolutely. Yes, He does. But our experience is based on demonstrable truth. And that truth is Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. You see, Paul will not let you ever break those two things apart. There is fact and there is uh, experience. There's truth and there's spirit. We cannot choose between them. We can't go one or the other because they go together. The love of God is experienced in the heart, but the love of God is demonstrated in history. There's fact and there's feeling. There's knowledge in the head. There's affection in the heart. There is truth and there is spirit. You see, the Spirit takes the historical facts of Christ's death and He opens the eyes of our heart to see the love of God. I mean, let's face it. A lot of people see that, uh, hear that Jesus died on the cross. A lot of people hear that Jesus died for you and they don't care. But what God does for us is He opens our heart to see the love of God in that act and how much He loves me. And when we see that, He pours that love into our heart experientially so we can know it and we can feel it. And again, it's not an experience like a drug-induced high. It's not a meditative trance. It is an experience based on factual truth. Paul wants us to see this. It's imperative, not just here in Romans, but in other letters. He wants us to both know in our mind and feel it in our heart how much Christ loves us. For example, in Thessalonians 3, 5, Paul says this, May the Lord direct your heart to the love of God. See, he wants us to feel it down deep inside. At the same time, in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, Paul prays this, That you may be able to comprehend, to understand with your mind what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ. Now, that's the first question. How do we know God loves us? Because he died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for me. He demonstrated His love. He showed us that He loves. He didn't just say it. He does that. But He actually demonstrated. Now that brings us to the second question. How do we know how much God loves us? Chuck Colson tells a story about a group of American POWs uh, during World War II. And uh, they were prisoners of war, and, and every morning they would have to go out and do hard labor, and they would be assigned a shovel. And at the end of the day, they would come back in, and they would turn in their shovels, and they would be uh, counted. Well, this one day, this group of about 20 uh, soldiers went out, and they were given their shovels, and at the end of the day, they come back, they turn in their shovels, and the guard counts them. Well, when the guard counts the shovels, he only counts 19 of them. And, of course, he's enraged, and he demands to know who didn't bring their shovel back. Well, nobody says a thing for a a few seconds. It's just silence. So the guard takes out his pistol, and he says, I'm going to execute five men unless someone confesses to not turning in their shovel. And about five or ten seconds go by of silence. And then this young soldier, uh, about 19 years old, steps forward. And uh, as soon as he steps out of the line, the uh, the guard takes his pistol and shoots him in the head. 
Uh, later on, the, uh, the, 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 the men, the 20 soldiers, go over and they count the shovels because they can't imagine that guy didn't bring his back. And when they counted the shovels, it turned out there were 20. And the guard had miscounted. But you see, it. here's what I want you to see. In that five or ten seconds of silence, that young man had weighed his whole future in the balance. Future marriage, future children, future career. And he chose death so that others might live. How do you measure love? How do you measure love? There are degrees of love. And it turns out there are four parameters that we can use to measure love. The first parameter that we use to measure love is the cost of the deed. You see, did it cost someone maybe an afternoon of time and sweat to come to your house and rake your yard or... Or, or help you work on your car? Well, that's one degree of love. Or did it cost them their life? You see, that's a completely different degree of love. And the greater the sacrifice, the deeper the love. A second parameter that we can use to measure love is the freedom of the act. You know, anybody that's got children, especially multiple children, can understand this. As a parent for years, uh, you, you get one of your children to buy gifts for the other children. Right, and, and so let's say it's their birthday and, and one of the birthdays coming up. So you take your children and you and you, you give them money and you go to the store, you drive them there, you, you help them pick out the gift, you wrap the gift, and then they give that gift to their sibling. But one day, of their own volition, they take their own money and they take their own time and they go and they pick out their own gift. And let me tell you, that changes everyone, everything, Right? It changes everything. The freedom of the act can measure the degree of love. You can see the depth of love which someone shows us by how free the act is. Is it coerced? Is is it in in any way? Uh, Or is it completely free? The third way that we measure love is how undeserving is the object of that love. Jesus said in in Luke 6.32, even sinners love those who love them back. Anybody can love someone when they're being loved back. But what if you're loving people that don't love you back? What if you're loving people who don't return it or even say they don't even care that you love them? See, that type of love is a greater love than those who just love uh, those who love them back. The fourth parameter is the greatness of the benefit. The greatness of the benefit. Listen, love is not just making a sacrifice. If someone sacrifices for you, but you receive no benefit from that at all, then what's the point, right? Love has to be more than just making a sacrifice. Love should always benefit the person receiving it in some way. Now, here's the thing. Jesus Christ has loved you and I in all four of those ways. And he's done it, to be quite honest, in a way that is beyond human comprehension. For example, how about the cost of the deed? Philippians 2, 6, and 8 says this, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God himself becomes a human and dies on a cross. There is no greater cost. You can't find anything that's a greater cost than, than that. How about the freedom of the act? 
John 10, 17, Jesus said this, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own volition. I lay it down freely. I lay it down of myself. How about how the third one? How undeserving are the objects of that love? Well, let's come back to tonight's passage, Romans 6 through 8, chapter 5, 6 through 8. It says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How undeserving were we? We weren't righteous, we weren't good, we were ungodly. In fact, uh, in the next few verses, he'll say that we were his enemies. Even in that state, God died for us. And finally, the greatness of the benefit. Let's just remind ourselves one more time of what Christ's death on the cross did for us. John 3.36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son, and by the way, that was every single one of us, at some point in our life. Shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, at one point, I was in that group. The wrath of God was on me. But Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrated his love toward me and that while I was still a sinner, I was still in that state, Christ died for me. You see, it is Christ's death on my behalf that saves me from that wrath. He bore the curse that I was supposed to carry. He died in my place. And according to Isaiah, God laid on him the iniquity of not just me, but of us all. Now, I want you to read Romans 5, 9 through 11. This is the benefit that we get. Paul says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, justified by his death, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, Paul says, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. You read those verses, and Paul says it three times, more, more, more. You see, God gave His only Son to suffer and die on a cross to save you and I. And He did that while we were His enemies. And what are we now? 1 John 3, 1 says this, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. You see, God's already done the hard thing. He's already sacrificed His Son to reconcile His enemies to Him. If He's already done that for me, how much more will He save His own children? Paul says he will, much more he will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. What an incredible, incredible passage of, of Scripture. The, the love that you have for us, God, should give us incredible assurance. That is the whole point of this. That if you did all of that for us while we were your enemies, how much more will you do for us now that we're your children. God, I pray that everybody within the sound of my voice will hear this truth and understand this truth and the peace of God, which passes understanding, will flood their hearts and flood their minds. And I ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.